Hello, you're listening to Wait, How Do You Spell That? A Rare Disease Podcast. My name is Colby, and I'm the content manager here at PatientWorthy. Today, we've got some very exciting news. We're going to be discussing the National Economic Burden of Rare Disease Study, which was organized by the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. It's a landmark study that examines the economic impact of 379 rare diseases, estimating the cost in the United States at $966 billion. To help us understand the results of this study and what it means for rare disease families, we've got two very special guests. The first is Annie Kennedy, the Chief of Policy and Advocacy at the Every Life Foundation. And we also have Marisa Penrod, the founder of Team Joseph, a Duchenne muscular dystrophy nonprofit striving to fund treatment of that condition. Annie, Marisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Colby. And first, I'd just like to say thank you to you both for coming on the show today. This study I know was a massive undertaking and it's shining a light on an economic burden that hasn't been as closely examined in the past. The results were first made public yesterday, February 25th at a rare disease congressional caucus briefing. So it's brand new data. And I think people are used to hearing about the cost of more common conditions. Um, for instance, lost business productivity because of the flu or of course more recently COVID-19. But this study in particular also examines non-medical expenditures for rare disease patients and their families. That's one of the first studies to do so, correct? That's absolutely correct, yes. Okay. And before we get into the study, just to start off, why don't we do some quick introductions? Um, Annie, Marisa, can you tell us a little bit more about yourselves and the two organizations you represent? Sure, absolutely. Marisa, how about you go first? As we said, I'm Marisa. I am the founder of Team Joseph. And well before Team Joseph was founded, I'm the mom of Joseph. Joseph's our inspiration. He's the namesake uh, to the organization. And we are um, a nonprofit that focuses on Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, and we do that by funding research and also in collaboration with a partner organization, we um, have a family assistance organization where we directly help families with expenses caring for a child with a rare disease and also um, helping them navigate uh, government programs. Thanks, Marisa. So I'm Annie Kennedy. I'm the Chief of Policy and Advocacy at the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. And we're a coalition organization comprised of rare disease organization partners like Team Joseph and Marisa's organization um, and other concerned stakeholders, which include our biopharmaceutical industry partners, academic organizations, and those who have a vested interest in our rare disease community. And we are a policy organization. So we are solely focused on promoting policies mm -hmm. that move forward therapeutic development, access to diagnosis and newborn screening, and ultimately access to uh, treatments that will change the trajectory of rare disease. Great, thank you. Annie, um, moving to you first, would you mind giving us sort of a high level overview of the National Economic Burden of Rare Disease Study and some of the history surrounding it? Uh, what was the goal of the study and how was the data collected? So first, maybe a little bit of definition about what economic burden of disease or cost of illness studies are. So I've been working in this space for a, a little over um, two decades and also have family members who are impacted by rare disease. And in that time have seen what happens firsthand when we don't have really good data um, around the lived experience of rare disease. And in our communities, we spend a lot of time talking about the collection of patient experience data 
to inform regulatory decision-making, we spend less time talking about the collection of that data to inform decision-making in other ecosystems like health economics within the context of payers and value assessments. And so what this study really does is it really helps to inform those types of decisions. So economic cost studies really help with cost estimates that are used for prioritizing policy agendas. So you actually referenced a couple of public health initiatives that we've talked about a lot lately in the community COVID, for example. But understanding what the impact of a disease or a group of diseases has really helps to determine how we as a society prioritize public health overall. The other thing that we do with economic cost studies is we help determine cost estimates to understand where the specific economic cost drivers are within our communities so that we can work towards policies and solutions in a more targeted way. So within the Every Life Foundation, when we looked at our rare disease community, what we knew is that we had never really had a real quantitative study done around the rare disease community. So in other words, we really needed to move from back of the envelope estimates or anecdotal estimates of what it means to live with a rare disease financially, the costs that show up in your healthcare bills, as well as those that were being absorbed directly by families. And so that number, the sort of sum total there, uh, when you hear that $966 billion, it's, it's almost hard to wrap your head around that amount. Um, I think for most outside observers, uh, that figure would probably represent to them a, a hidden cost, a factor that they don't consider for a range of conditions that might not be top of mind when they think about healthcare. Um, Marisa, a question for you. I'm wondering, as the founder of an organization on the ground, for one of these conditions. What are some of your initial takeaways when you see the economic burden of rare disease presented in this way? I think my first reaction was, um, you know, a fist in the air, like, yes, uh, we're finally being heard. Um, it's finally being documented. And then I think my, my secondary reaction is, as compelling as this is, what is really powerful to me and, and to so many other people, who are in the rare disease space is, is an understanding that this is just starting to scratch the surface of representing what it looks like to live with a rare disease. And also I think what's really compelling about this is that this isn't just about those hard costs. Like Annie said, what do you see in your hospital bill? This is about, you know, I call it the ripple effect, right? Like um, people who have a rare disease, whether it's a child or a young adult or a, you know, a middle-aged adult, it doesn't happen in isolation. It's part of, um, usually part of a family, um, part of a broader community. And, and we've, so now we've started to uh, acknowledge that through some of these numbers and some of the data in this. And Colby, if I could just build off of that for a second, I love that Marisa, the ripple effect. I think it's really important to talk about how we conducted this study. So the study was conducted really by our community. So as I mentioned before, we're a coalition organization. So we, um, first we worked with the Lewin Group, who is a very well-known, reputable organization to help conduct such studies. And when we went to them, we let them know that we wanted to do this study and we wanted to incorporate direct costs. So those costs that we talk about, you see in your hospital bills, your outpatient, inpatient, and physician visits, prescription medications. But we also really wanted to include those indirect and non-medical costs that we've been talking about. And when they first set out to do the study, what they came back to us and said was that it was gonna be really difficult to do that second piece. 
really quantify the um, lived experience, the costs that were being absorbed by families because there wasn't a lot of information in the literature. There wasn't a lot of methodology that had been um, published previously. So we worked with the Lewin Group to develop a survey that could be disseminated to the broader rare disease community. But to create that survey, we worked with our patient organization or advocacy organization partners. And so we had almost 100 organizations partner with us to help us determine what data elements we were going to collect in that survey. So what were the costs? What were the expenditures? What were the lived experiences that we need to try to assess and capture across the broad rare disease spectrum and whittle that down into a survey that would be manageable to be disseminated and taken. And then those partners then helped us push that survey out to the broad rare disease community. So when we talk about this report and this study, it's a reflection of really the input and then the um, experiences and the, of that community that really helped us put this together and spent over 18 months working with us to um, share their experiences and it's also one year's worth of data. So we're looking at 2019 data. And so as Marisa says, we are just really scratching the surface here. If you're talking in terms of a family who's living with a loved one with a rare disease, those are cumulative costs over time that you know in 2019, you may not have spent the majority of the money to make a home renovation because you have a family member who has a progressive disorder, or that may not have been the year that you traveled the most to get a diagnosis or to seek expert care out of state. So we may not be even beginning to capture the costs of living with a rare disease in the study, but it's a really important start and it's a conservative estimate. So while those numbers may seem staggering, they, we believe that they are conservative and we always try to be conservative in these estimates so that we can start the conversation around what it means to really live with a rare disease and how we begin to really impact policy in a way that can be meaningful for our rare disease community and the larger public. So it sounds like you're, you're breaking ground with this study and actually taking a serious look at the economic impact of this from a, a patient's side. It's not necessarily been done before. Can, can we speak uh, a little bit about some of the data points uh, that you uncovered? Uh, as you mentioned, uh, this categorizes economic data centered around various aspects of rare disease care. And when the numbers began to settle, uh, what jumped out at you, Annie, as being especially significant from this data? What we saw was validating. I think the fact that when we looked at the numbers, the indirect and non-medical costs are higher than the direct medical costs was validating. For those of us in the community, that's not unexpected, but I think it's really important to see because I think the conversations we have, that what we spend a lot of time talking about are those costs that are showing up in actuar actuarials or the costs that we see in the healthcare system. It's all of those invisible costs. It's the costs that are being absorbed by families that are invisible to our policy discussions um, that were really important to shine a light on. And so the fact that in this study, we're seeing that those costs are actually outweighing the direct costs, I believe are validating to the rare disease community's experience. 
Marisa, you're a mother and caregiver for someone who has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And one part of the report, as Annie just mentioned, breaks down the indirect economic burden on rare disease families. So costs that aren't necessarily associated with hospitals, doctors, insurance companies. Uh, in fact, as this study shows, uh, $548 billion, over half of the economic burden examined, is actually indirect or non-medical in nature for, for these families. So can you speak a little about what these types of costs typically encompass for rare disease families? Sure. And I, I think something that's, you know, just important to set the stage for is, you know, for the sake of presenting the data, they're called indirect costs. And, and we say non-medical, meaning, you know, maybe they don't take place in a hospital or it's not a doctor's office visit. But so many of the monumental hurdles we face are medically necessary. So for instance, in the world of Duchenne, it's, you know, Duchenne is progressive. So, so we have um, kind of an extra challenge in that our target is constantly moving as parents and caregivers. So we figure out what to do and how to care for our child. You know, we feel like, okay, we've got this figured out and then the disease is progressing. So the condition changes. So then we have to sort of refigure out what to do next and how to do it. So we're always, you know, I call it tap dancing. We're always trying to figure this out. So when we talk about things that are absorbed by the family, um, they certainly are medically necessary, you know, and I think that's a, a critical piece of this conversation is that the onus for these things are on the family and they are necessary. They're, they're medically necessary and everybody's not equipped to navigate the system nor to really know how, to, how do we make this happen? How do I get the equipment I need? I mean, with my own son, I've had some pretty you know, significant battles in terms of getting him what he needs, but ultimately I've, I've been fairly successful just you know, like with his power wheelchair, which has an astronomical price tag on it. I had to jump through a few hoops to be able to get the powered wheelchair that Joseph needed. You know, so, so in Duchenne, um, because it's progressive uh, and it affects you know, 99% boys, most kids are walking until they're around the ages of 10 and 12. And then as that progresses, they lose ambulation. So a, a power wheelchair becomes necessary. It's not just a power wheelchair though, right? So what it is, is it, it protects their spine as their, as their muscles are um, deteriorating. It's essential for their spine health, which is a, essential for their lung health, which is, it impacts the heart. So everything that we all do and, and try to advocate for for our kids, it's all interconnected. And that's the thing that I think is so exhausting as a family is everything we do seems to be in these buckets. We're at a particular doctor or at a particular vendor, or we're having a particular, particularly difficult conversation with an insurance company, and they all happen in isolation. And then it's our job sort of to put this puzzle together. And Colby, I think what happens is that, you know, when you're, you're so committed to doing whatever you have to do for your child or for yourself, if you're a rare disease patient, that what happens really is it becomes a full-time job. And anybody who's a parent, not just in the rare Duchenne world, but, you know, we've all heard people joke about, you know, you have a baby and you're like, oh my goodness, they didn't come with a manual. <laughs> how do we do this? Like nobody tells me how to, nobody told me how to be a parent. And my goodness, that, that phenomenon is, is exponentially bigger in the rare disease world. So you sometimes are on this odyssey for years of trying to get a diagnosis. It's mysterious. And, you know, you're going to multiple doctors and having a lot of tests and, you know, if you're fortunate, you get a diagnosis and then there's no manual. 
nobody says, okay, here's the first step. Here's the second step. It's not sequential and, and linear. And somebody just gives you a guide until you find your, you know, a community or some friends, or you plug in somehow, you're really adrift in trying to figure this out on your own. These things, again, they're not luxuries, they're medically necessary. So there's um, a family that, you know, we, we have helped their son had to have spinal fusion surgery. And so he had the surgery and after surgery, it was recommended, you know, he's not ambulatory, he's lost the ability to walk and he needed a power wheelchair with a certain function to, to recline, um, to tilt backwards. And that was to aid in the healing of the surgery and to give him the proper positioning. And the mom went through three different appeals with the insurance company and after nine months was still denied getting this wheelchair. So at the end of the day, what has happened is this young man, this boy is now facing an additional surgery because he didn't get the equipment he needed. So when we talk about dollar figures and we talk about equipment, it's not just the cost of the equipment. It's not just, well, yeah, he, sh he should have a wheelchair. It's what happens downstream from that, right? What happens because of the delays? What happens because of you know, the inequities in, in the distribution of resources. And some people have the ability to pay and some people don't. And, and those have real impact on the patient, of course, but on the parent, the caregiver, and on the entire family. So Annie, uh, as, as you mentioned previously, one of the Every Life Foundation's goals is to advocate for legislation and policy at multiple levels of government that advances equitable treatment for rare diseases. What are you hoping that policymakers will take away from this study? So the first thing is, I think we've only, as I think we said, begun to wrap our arms around the extent to which the rare disease community is impacted by their diagnoses and how families and communities are impacted financially. So I think we've just scratched the surface on this report, but I do think that based on this data, rare diseases represent an urgent public health crisis. And I think that's something in the community we've known, but I think we now do have high quality evidence to support that. That demands attention and increased funding for research, enhanced awareness of rare diseases and increased resources to really address much of what Marisa was just talking about to improve access to timely diagnoses, adequate and aggressive care and treatment. And only then will we begin to help reduce these costs and improve the quality and quantity of life of those living with rare diseases. And so it's incredibly important to us that we really work with policymakers to respond to this public health crisis and this need in the rare disease community. Marisa, from your end, having access to this kind of economic data, what are some of the ways that you can see this being helpful in your efforts to advocate for Duchenne? I think what it shows us is just that, you know, the, the impact of, of the cost of rare disease is great. Um, as Annie stated earlier, you know, this is just a snapshot. And I think, Colby, so we use the term rare disease, which is absolutely, it's, it's accurate and it's true. But I think when we talk about it sometimes, when we hear the word rare, my fear is that, you know, people think, well, it's not my problem. It's somebody else's problem. It's rare. It's not going to affect me. And I think when you look at these numbers, the scope of this study, when we talk about 379 rare diseases represented in the responses to this study, 
which translates into representing about 15 and a half million people who are impacted by these 379 diseases. It's no longer somebody else's problem. It, it's all of our problem. And I think that for me is one of the most compelling parts of this is that once you know this, once you see this information, you can no longer look away. You can no longer feel as though it's somebody else's problem and it's not ours. And I was looking at the numbers last night and, and here's something interesting. I want to, I want to paint a quick little picture. So I was thinking about this and I'm like, you know, we're so used to big numbers, right? Like lots of commas and lots of zeros. You know, we talk about millions and, and trillions and billions. And, and it's almost like, I feel like we've become sort of desensitized to the, the magnitude sometimes of these numbers of the costs and the number of people that are impacted. So I did a little fun math and I was thinking about it and I'm like, what is, you know, 15 million people impacted by what we see in the respondents from this study. So what does 15 million people look like who are impacted just by this information? And as Andy said, it's conservative, right? We know it's much greater, but I was thinking about like a month ago, you know, we had the Super Bowl. Okay. So in COVID, right, we couldn't fill the stadium, but just, just go with me on this and think of, okay, Raymond James stadium, 65,000 person capacity, give or take. If we filled that stadium, 65,000 seats filled shoulder to shoulder with rare disease patients represented by these 379 diseases from this study respondents, it would take us almost 240 days. You know, if we filled it every day, 240 days, it would take us into next into, into October to fill the stadium with who this represents. So when we start to create pictures and visuals of what does this really look like, it's pretty compelling. And, and what it says to me is, it's not, it's not somebody else's problem anymore. It's all of ours. What excites me about a landmark study like this is it's a pivotal moment. It opens a door that we can't close again. It opens a door where we have to make decisions about who we are and what do we value. And you can't walk away from that and you can't not address that now. And those are fundamental questions that will drive the action that comes after this. And so sort of playing off of that, let's imagine, uh, you know, somebody looking at this information from the outside in, uh, perhaps this has opened their eyes, you know, they, they see what an economic burden this is for a rare disease family, and they think, I, I want to help. What are some ways that people can get involved to help address this situation? Are, are there any ways? I love that question. And the answer is absolutely yes. So I would say that the first thing is we have a lot of information on our website, um, burdenstudy.org. And we also have this week, as we're here talking about the podcast, we're getting ready for an event called Rare Across America. And it's an opportunity for our community members, those who are interested in supporting the rare disease community to help raise awareness, reach out to lawmakers and um, help ensure that people understand what some of the issues that the rare disease community are concerned about really are. And as we have a new Congress that's just moved into Washington, this is an especially important time mm -hmm. or that we ensure that our new administration and our new Congress is aware of what's happening in rare disease. And I think what we're really learning is that rare is not rare. And so as you know, you're talking about people sort of standing outside, looking in, hearing about this, the odds are that those individuals may know somebody or love somebody who has a rare disease and are hearing about this and thinking about this and thinking about how they lean in to be supportive. And we are a collective community of individual diseases that um, 
is welcoming to anyone that wants to be a part of the solution. We are not a monolith. There are a lot of individual priorities um, and we are eager to have people join our army um, and be a part of really lifting the boats of all of us. I will also say that for those who participated in the story, there were a lot of communities who helped be a part of this, who may be listening now. We're really grateful to everyone who made this possible. And that for those who have rare diseases, it sometimes it feels like a really lonely place to be. And I would hope for those who see this study or reading this report, um, who are members of the rare disease community, that this is a reminder that um, we are not alone, that our experiences are not one-offs, and that people will see this study as being hopefully validating of their individual experiences and empowering that this is data that can be utilized for your own personal advocacy. And again, to ensure that um, we do shift this national conversation around rare diseases. So Marisa, do you have any advice for people who might want to get involved as well? I guess I would offer some encouragement and it's just that this study shows that the need is being acknowledged and in our voices are being heard. As much as we need other people to step in and, and help us and assist, we also have a responsibility ourselves to tell our stories and to continue to use our voices to um, create you know, collaboration and partnership and to you know, productively inspire the change to happen. And that happens when we use our voices and tell our stories. Um, and everybody's got one. So I just, um, I encourage everybody out there just to, you know, take the leap and, and get involved and, and share your experience. It matters. Finally, a question for you both. When looking at this study, what do you see its implications being in the long run? Is this a study that's going to be uh, repeated every year? Is it something that's going to be building to, to a next step? Uh, what, what do you think the next steps are for this information? This is a high-level report. We will have a larger publication coming out in the late spring with additional data coming from this study. But even this study, I think, is just a start. I think in doing the study, we found more that we need to dig into. I think, as we've said a number of times, this study represents 379 rare diseases. So this is just data from 379 of our broader rare disease community that's estimated to be over 7,000 diseases. So we've just started, we've just scratched the surface. And I think we also need to find a way to study the personal impact, the family financial impact, the indirect or non-medical costs more cumulatively, and not just look at a one-year annual snapshot of what those costs are. But this is a really important way to start the conversation and to begin to understand what's really happening within the rare disease community and where the rare disease community should fit within our national policy funding priorities. It's time to dig in deeper and, and look at what do those dollars represent in terms of what happens in people's households and in their homes. And what does that really look like, you know, out there in the, in the real world of rare disease? What does it look like in action, those overwhelming costs? And, and I think this is an incredible, incredibly strong start to doing that. Really what it is, is another way to try and tell the story and shape a narrative. In policy terms, in a lot of places, they say, in God we trust, everyone else bring data. We sort of joke about that. But it really was intended to translate the lived experience of families into data. But the end goal isn't to have data. The end goal 
is to improve the lived experience of families and is to reduce that financial toll on families and what families have to carry with rare disease. And that can mean a lot of different things for individual rare disease groups. I think that's what's critically important. So I really appreciate Maurice saying that people need to share their story because this report is only as strong as the narrative that goes alongside it. And so for everyone who was a part of this or everyone that is listening and is a part of disseminating the report with us, really helping us share just as Marisa has today, what this means to them, what these costs translate in their home and in their family to, and how we can help reduce those, shift those costs, lift that financial load off of them is the way that we as a community will use this data the way that it was intended. Okay, and Marisa, what else would you like people to know? You know, one of the things that always strikes me is when we talk about, you know, sharing our story and what does this really mean? What I want people to know is that I know I can speak for myself and a lot of people I know in the rare disease community. I'm not looking for anybody's pity and I'm not looking for anybody's even sympathy. I'm just looking for partnership and for the ability to do the best for my son. And also, you know, for my other two kids who don't have a rare disease themselves. And I just think, you know, a parent's ability to care for their child should not be dependent on their finances. And that's my hope is that when we see how big this load is that we carry, that it's compelling enough that you know, we'll start to make the changes and in, in say, you know what, this is not okay. It's absolutely not okay that this is the current situation. There are, there are too many people struggling and suffering and they're doing the right thing. You know, they're trying their hardest and, and they just need policymakers and we need, we need, we need to help each other. And, um, and that's my hope is that that's what this is going to inspire. And Annie, if people want to learn more about the National Economic Burden of Rare Disease Study, I know you mentioned this previously, but I just want to reiterate the website so people can read this for themselves. Um, Where can they go to to find that online? Sure. So to learn more about the National Economic Burden of Rare Disease Study, you can visit the Every Life Foundation website at www.burdenstudy.org. Okay. And Marisa, if people are interested in getting in touch with Team Joseph, what's the best way for them to do that? You can just go right to our website. It's uh, teamjoseph.org. Okay. And we'll put the links to the uh, Burden Study and the Every Life Foundation and Team Joseph in the show notes for this episode. We highly encourage you to check them out. Uh, Marisa, Annie, I just want to thank you once again for coming on the show today. It was a lot of very important information to discuss, and I think people are really going to enjoy reading over it. Thank you so much, Colby. Thank you for having us today. Thanks, Colby. And if you'd like to keep up with the latest rare disease news and learn more about some of the organizations who are helping to advocate in this space, you can always find more information at patientworthy.com. You can also follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for PatientWorthy. And if you like this episode, please consider leaving us a rating on your favorite podcasting app. It's quick and easy and really does help us out. And as always, thank you for listening.